Hello everyone, my name is Ryan and you're listening to The Vegan Report. If you are an ethical vegan and you care to do more to end animal abuse, then this podcast is for you. Every Tuesday, discover passionate, thought-provoking and inspiring vegan leaders from all walks of life who will inspire you to take action. Today, we are going to talk about minks and their horrendous exploitation for making fur coats and accessories like lashes. No, you did not misheard me. This abomination exists. And this is how PETA denounces it in a blog post. In Australia and other countries, mink lashes have become popular. They're mink fur that's been shaved off a mink's body that are then glued in strings to a human's eyelashes for a fuller and thicker look. Mink lashes are often sold as 100% cruelty-free or safely collected from a free-range farm or even taken only after the minks have been brushed. Minks are the most commonly farmed fur-bearing animals in the world. If you purchase a mink fur coat or a set of mink lashes, you're supporting an industry in which animals endure immense fear, stress, disease, parasites, and other physical and psychological hardships. To discuss this topic, I have with me Malcolm Klemovich, a professional photographer and an animal rights activist who got in legal troubles for denouncing this industry. Malcolm, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Ryan. I'm looking forward to uh, telling your viewers about the, the mink farm industry and the fur farm industry in general. One point I'd just like to make for the viewers is, um, you know, despite the claims of uh, minks being brushed or their fur collected humanely, the uh, those lashes, the fur uh, always comes with the skin attached after it's ripped off the mink's body. So it's pretty horrifying and cruel, in my opinion. Mm. Well, let us start by maybe getting listeners familiar, familiarized, <laughs> familiarized. Oh, I, I'm I'm losing my English. Sorry, <laughs> I will edit that out. Um, with minks, uh, can you give give us an idea of uh, what kind of animals they are? Because I, I feel like people don't have a clear understanding. We know what a ferret is and minks resemble ferrets, but they're far from being ferrets. So um, give us an idea of what is a mink. Um, so minks and ferrets, I believe they're both in the, uh, the weasel family. Uh, they're similar. Um, minks are um, semi-aquatic animals. Um, so they spend, you know, I think like 60 or 70% of their time swimming around in the water and like wetlands. Um, if you actually look at a mink's uh, feet, the fingers or the digits are actually webbed so they can swim. Um, they've evolved that way um, to be close to water. Obviously, on fur farms, they don't have access to that. So they're denied their natural instinct to swim. Um, in the wild, they travel about you know, 10, 20 kilometers per day at least. And in a fur farm, they don't have um, that kind of access to like freedom of movement or um, being able to do what they want to do. Um, I've not heard of free range mink farms, um, usually factory farms and the cages are about the size of a couple sheets of paper big. So in the other farm, they'll be pacing back and forth. Whereas in the wild, they'll just kind of be, you know, swimming or burrowing, um, doing the kind of natural stuff they love to do, you know, foraging um, or um, hunting for food. Um, yeah. And they're, they're very, um, kind of like more solitary animals but on fur farms they'll cram you know up to 10 dozen of these animals together in cages um so on a fur farm they're actually they'll have what's called a cannibalism stage um during the the growth season of the minks where they'll actually attack each other or um you know mutilate themselves from boredom and frustration whereas in the wild they're not doing any of that kind of stuff usually they're kind of more on their own um yeah they're they're Beautiful natural animals. I've seen minks out um, on camping, on camping trips. Um, you know, they're very, very just like normal creature, just like any other that you know don't deserve to end up on a, a horrifying factory farm. So, yes. Uh, so, where can we find them? They're present in the wild in North America uh, and in Europe, I think. 
Um, yeah, I think the the main ones that I know are the North American minks, which are native to all of North America, Canada, the U.S. Um, so you can find them in any kind of natural wetland. Mm. Um, a lot of the times, the um, the European minks are actually um, the farms import North American uh, minks, and then they'll end up going into the wild population and you know bringing different diseases and stuff that aren't natural to Europe. So you see stuff like um, during COVID, they had um, infections with some of the mink farms there. And uh, I think in Denmark, they actually had to uh, call all of the mink in the country and then they banned fur farming because of these zoonotic diseases, whereas um, maybe you won't see um, the exact same stuff here. But uh, yeah, they're, they're very, uh, like they're supposed to be in North America. You see them all over the place here when you're uh, out in wetlands. And I remember, I think I've only seen one mink in the wild in my life. And it was a white, it, it had a white uh, fur. Um, they, they must come in different colors. So how do farmers, um, because I I think they, they try to have like a uniform color to make the coats and accessories. So do they select them um do they use you know selective breeding in order to get uh, minks of only one color or, or something like that um so yeah the color i'm not 100 sure of their process of selection but i do know from what i've seen there are fully white minks fully black minks um gray minks and i'm sure they probably have you know everything in between but definitely i think the predominant ones are full colored and um these minks um you know have been uh, bred only in captivity for around 100 years so they're not domesticated like other farm animals like a pig or a cow or a chicken these animals are very wild um they want to engage in their natural behaviors and stuff like that but um i do know one interesting fact about the colors of the minks there i remember reading somewhere on you know the animal liberation front uh, is a group that will um, do things like release minks into the wild um, sometimes if they're not able to, they'll find the white minks and they'll dye their fur with non-poisonous uh, dye, like non-toxic dye, so that the farmers can't use them as a form of economic sabotage against the mink industry. That's amazing. That's genius. And a, a final point about minks, and uh, maybe listeners will find it a bit silly, but they're cute. They're actually very cute. So it adds to the level of you know how can you be so evil toward a creature that looks so cute um yeah actually the makes when i was in the, the fur farms there and doing my um video recordings of them they actually remind me very much of cats mm. they're kind of a similar size a bit smaller maybe a bit longer but um their behaviors resemble cats quite a bit like they'll lay on their backs with their bellies out and they'll like um communicate to each other and just kind of roll around and it's kind of horrifying the way people have the disconnect between you know like a companion animal and these wild animals um whereas you know people care more about your companion animal and if it's a wild animal it somehow gets put into some category in their minds where you could treat them poorly so you know imagine you know if you're looking at a picture of a mink farm instead of minks and there's just filled with cats how people would feel uh, a little bit different and how did you how did you get got interested in um minks and uh the exploitation of minks um well i used to live in kitchener ontario i was part of an animal rights group there and uh one of my friends one time we just um they lived out in the, the country and we took a ride out to a mink farm and i actually got up close um and i looked through the the fence and i could actually see the minks and um you know, at that moment, I made a promise to myself that I'd uh, do everything I could to stop that. It was horrifying to me. Um, so we started doing, you know, protests at that mink farm during the day with signs and stuff. We'd have the media come. Uh, I try to raise awareness about it. And then, uh, you know, I went further with my activism eventually after I found that wasn't having much effect of just doing these protests uh, in the country. And those farms are located in rural areas? Is it the same as like a big farm or... Yeah, it's all rural areas. Um, the only case I can remember of one being kind of inside a city was um, Kitchener-Waterloo. 
Um, they had a mink farm, I guess, at some point on the outskirts of the city, which was farmland. And then as urban sprawl took more and more of like uh, natural and wildlife land away, um, this one particular area near the mink farm became very affluent. They'd build like, you know, semi mansions. There is very wealthy people that live there and they didn't like the smell of the mink manure because it's, uh, you know, the smell is very intense and like it's nauseating to tell you the truth. They lobbied the city, I think, to close this farm down, and then it uh, shut down at some point because uh, wealthy people didn't like the smell. But they probably, you know, in their closets, probably had mink coats uh, at the same time, which is very uh, conflicting um, ideas. Uh, same with um, pig farms or pig slaughterhouses. The smell is absolutely horrendous. I never entered a slaughterhouse <laughs> or um, a pig farm, but I, I once was nearby one and the smell you know it's just um you know gives you tears to your eyes um so can you give us an idea and you uh brushed off on that um before of the uh you know conditions in which those um minks are um are in um um, yeah, the the fur farms there are pretty horrifying places. Um, I'll kind of backtrack there for your listeners so you get an idea of like why and how I went into mink farms. Um, so I saw a documentary um, probably around like 2014, 2015 called uh, Inside Fur, which followed um, activists from, I believe it was Norway, maybe yeah, Norway. Um, they visited hundreds of fur farms with their cameras and they were recording, you know, the horrifying conditions there. And they made a documentary called Inside Fur and uh, it got huge media attention there. So it was, um, you know, in the public conscience very much because it was constantly in the media. It got debated in Parliament. And at some point, uh, that footage helped um, lead to a fur farm ban in that country. So I wanted to recreate that here. I didn't want to reinvent the wheel and start like some kind of new activism. I wanted to do something that had been successful, at least somewhere else. So I decided to do you know, a public inquiry into five uh, mink farms in particular in um, southern Ontario. So I went uh, on different occasions. You know, These farms have basically um, a barbed wire fence around the property. Um, the fence goes into the ground so that the minks can't burrow underneath if they escape. Um, the fence are, fences are often electrified. Um, they have alarm systems on them. And so if you touch them, it could uh, call the farmer or police officer. Or, uh, um, they also have you know security cameras everywhere, infrared cameras to watch. Uh, some of these farms have guard dogs on them. On one occasion, I was chased away by a, a guard dog, which is a pretty horrifying experience. This sounds um, like a prison. You're describing a prison. Yeah, these places, um, you know, it's a prison for minks, for animals. Um, and then inside the fence there, you have these long sheds. And um, I don't want people to have any illusions here, but these places are, you know, factory farms. It's not nothing free range, nothing nice. These animals don't have access to anything. Once you get inside the sheds there, they're wire cages. Um, they look like a cage you'd catch a, a raccoon or like a wild animal with um, to relocate. Um, they're about the same size and they're stacked like thousands, tens of thousands side by side. They're raised up. Um, these animals never leave the cages. They're born in there and then they die in there. Um, the, the farmer feeds them like a slop of food on top of the cage. So that the way they eat is they have to stand up in their cage and lick um, just like a gooey meat from the top of the, uh, the cage. Which on, I was in these farms, you know, you're supposed to change the food a few times a day um, by the Ontario uh, agriculture regulations. But like, obviously, that's not happening on these farms. Uh, when I was there, the food's kind of rotted. It's infested with bugs. These animals have to eat that. And then at the same time, um, you know, they stand on um, wire constantly. So they have no other place really in the cage to, you know, rest Um their paws actually, in some cases, become deformed from standing on wire constantly because they're not supposed to do that. And then they defecate in their own cage. The, the feces is supposed to fall through to the bottom. Um, and I guess the farmers are supposed to clean it up, you know, every day or something like that. But that's not definitely not happening on these farms. You can see from the videos that I shot, some of the manure is piled up from the ground um, about two feet back up to the cage. 
Um, there's these sludge pits of urine uh, filled with maggots and, you know, bugs and stuff like that. There's just this, the stench, you know, the, the, the toxic fumes coming from the feces and from the urine is like the most nauseating, horrifying thing you can imagine. Uh, that's what sticks with me every time I go into the country and I smell the, the feces and stuff like that. It kind of triggers these uh, horrifying memories. And these animals, you know, they spend their whole lives in these cages, so they don't engage in natural behaviors like burrowing or swimming, like I said before, um, they end up getting, um, I think it was called zoocosis, which is a stereotypy behavior or stereotypical behavior um, that's abnormal for animals that they don't usually engage in. Um, you see these behaviors in places like zoos where animals, um, any kind of animal can't uh, roam freely, which um, includes like pacing back and forth in the cage, um, mutilating themselves, um, you know, chewing off their own limbs, uh, attacking each other, um, rubbing their bodies against the, the wire cages until they're raw and bleeding. Um, it's because of frustration and boredom, because these animals absolutely have nothing to do in there. Um, by the, um, the law, the Ontario, um, from the Ontario Minister of Agriculture, these animals are supposed to have what's called an enrichment in the cage which is nothing more than like uh, a piece of wood on a string or maybe a golf ball, something that the animals can manipulate so that they don't engage in these behaviors. Like imagine you're in a prison, they give you a golf ball. That's all you have for your whole life to do anything with. And, you know, the, these farms, a lot of them weren't even um, offering these to animals. They had nothing in their cages. And, you know, the food falls through into the cage and it mixes with their feces and these animals are eating that and sleeping in it. It is a horrifying, it's worse than hell, in my opinion, worse than a puppy mill. At some point, they get slaughtered in order to get their fur. How does that happen? Um, so for different animals, it's slightly different. So for minks in particular, um, they have uh, like a cart that they'll bring with them. And um, it's hooked up to carbon monoxide so they basically will grab the minks out of these cages with uh these big leather gloves you can't hold a mink they'll bite you right away so they have to have, be, have these thick gloves because they're trying to be attacked and they're trying to save their lives they throw them in the box and then they suffocate basically they have no air they have carbon monoxide and they just suffocate these animals um foxes in canada your viewers may be surprised to learn that they um euthanize them with electricity they electrocute foxes to death they'll put an electrode in their mouth and one in their um their rectum and then they they electrocute them and that's considered humane in canada i don't know a single person in the world that would let, allow that to happen to their companion animals the way of euthanasia and consider it humane it is horrifying it's illegal in many places around the world canada is way behind on animal welfare laws and all that kind of stuff needs to end it's not humane in any form or sense, suffocation, electrocution is cruel. And the reason why they use such sadistic ways of slaughtering minks and foxes is because they want to preserve the fur. Is that a good assumption? Yeah, that is, yeah that's probably one of the main reasons. Also, cost. Um, they want to keep costs down so they profit. You know, these whole operations are... are are not there for animal welfare, they're for the farmer to make some money for profits. Um, yeah. And let's talk about the fur. It is considered a luxury item and it baffles me that some people look at that fur and think luxury instead of uh, abuse, oppression, torture, uh, slaughter. How do you explain that disconnect? How do you explain that in 2023, we still have people in denial of where fur are coming from? I, I can understand, you know, dairy and meat. Um, but fur, I feel like it's way up there in public perception of this is bad. Like, I think animal rights activists have done a great job at relying the message that this is particularly bad uh, practice. And I think most people are aware of that. But how do you explain that disconnect? And how is it that there is still a market for, for that fur? 
Um, well, the market's getting smaller, which is good news. Um, you know, activists, um, celebrities, um, politicians are fighting the fur trade all over the world. But at the same time, you have, you know, these luxury brand companies, um, like number one um, enemy is Louis Vuitton, uh, owned by LVMH. Um, they spend, you know, millions of dollars promoting um, their brands and promoting fur as, you know, luxurious. So, you know, how powerful advertising is, like when you watch a Super Bowl ad or something like that, it's obviously going to influence people if, you know, you see some famous rapper, like actress or celebrity, like Kim Kardashian or somebody coming out with a fur coat. These people want to emulate, you know, wealth and fame. So they want to be like these people. Another thing that's interesting about that is in the 90s um, and like before that, full length fur coats were very popular. Um, it was very a class thing too. If you wanted to show that you're wealthy, you'd have a big long fur coat. I think the same kind of still holds true today, but not as much. Um, regular people, you won't see them wearing uh, full length furs because of the, the cost and also people do associate it with cruelty. Um, around the time of the 2000s, I would say the fur industry tried to reinvent itself. So they got rid of, um, a lot of designers got rid of the full length furs. They started incorporating things like fur trim, uh, fur pom-poms, little fur um, decorations onto clothing so that it was more um, consumable by the average public. I think a lot of people too don't understand um, the cruelty that happens on fur farms. Not everybody has had an experience like me, not everybody's seen um, videos of the inside of a fur farm. Um, sometimes people think, you know, the hair is brushed off the animal or it's collected humanely in some way, shaved, but it's not. It's not like a sheep or something like that. Um, this, this, the fur always comes with the skin. And um, <clears throat> another thing, too, um, these, these luxury brands are... Um, we're, I guess activists have been targeting them specifically in the last, I think, three years. So you're seeing designers like, you know, Saks Fifth Avenue, um, other designers and Gucci um, going for free and not from the goodness of their hearts, but because of pressure campaigns organized um, by activists like the CAFT, the Coalition to Abolish the Fur Trade has been uh, very instrumental in organizing activists globally to target one designer at a time. So you know, see activists instead of going to all sorts of different fur, fur stores, we target one designer and then it's a huge amount of pressure for these designers to drop fur. Uh, we did that um, a few years ago to um, the brand Rudsack, who your listeners may be familiar with. They owned over uh, 20 stores in Quebec, Ontario, one in New York, and we targeted them nonstop with um, store disruptions, protests. We had um, email blockades, phone zaps, um, doing demonstrations at the owners' homes and uh, in front of the rich mansions, and um, you know, just constantly um, keeping on them to drop fur. And eventually, Rudsack went fur free. Uh, again, you know, none of these people are doing it from the goodness of their hearts. It's because people are coming to these protests supporting the anti-fur movement. So we need more people to come out. And then, as we're doing that, we're educating the public. Everybody that walks by our protests, you know, can they can hear a chance? They can talk to us. We give them a flyer. They see the signs. Um, then they can act, you know, email the company, tell them to go for free or call them or whatever. We had a lot of people supporting us during the Red Sack campaign. And, um, you know, things are changing. So hopefully public opinion keeps shifting um, against uh, against the fur industry and against animal cruelty. You, you mentioned the owners and the big brands uh, driving this business. But uh, a focus of mine is talking about the workers in those factories or farms. Have you met them? Do they fit the uh, profile of like slaughterhouse workers, you know, poor people who are uh, um, uh, usually immigrants or minorities and they're the ones doing the dirty job of uh, slaughtering minks and, uh, um, you know, keeping them uh, imprisoned? Um, yeah, I have not met any workers myself. They're not as prolific as, uh, like, say, a slaughterhouse worker. Um, slaughterhouse workers, you know, it's a huge industry, way bigger than fur. Fur is kind of a niche industry still. And I think it's usually a farmer who would hire, you know, their friends or somebody close to them in the community. Um, they do often hire very vulnerable people. Um, there's actually um, a documentary that I'm in called Ending Real Fur, and the director interviewed um, 
one person that was an ex slaughterhouse worker who used to work, I believe for his uncle. And, you know, he's, um, had trouble having employment elsewhere. Um, so he had to work at fur farms for a long time. Um, he himself said it's horrifying and they do hire, you know, vulnerable populations of people, people that, um, you know, if they do try to be whistleblowers, maybe, um, the police wouldn't believe them, that kind of stuff. And, you know, these workers are, um, just like slaughterhouse workers, these uh, employees, these people get, you know, post-traumatic stress um, disorders and stuff like that from, you know, having to kill hundreds of animals. You can't do that every day and, you know, end up having like uh, a clear conscious or like a, you know, like a sound mind after that. It, it takes a chunk out of you. Like myself, just visiting these fur farms for a couple hours at a time, it still sticks with me for the rest of my life. Every time I smell the like manure or like drive by one of those places, I have memories that are pretty horrifying. So I can't imagine what these workers have to go through um, in the film and, and um, ending real fur. Um, the so the um, the worker at the fur farm talked about um, this particular mink named Gandalf. And he was, you know, call, he had to call the mink and he asked his uncle if he could keep that one mink as a pet. And he said, sure. And then um, he came back to an empty cage that had been killed and turned into a coat for 30 bucks. Yeah, and it adds to the layer of, you know, frustration and um, evil of that whole industry because uh, it's a it's a business around you know luxury, and the, the clients are very wealthy people. The brands are very powerful and influential, but at the end of the you know at the bottom of the pyramid, you have those workers who are uh, vulnerable from vulnerable populations you know there's something perverse to it it adds to the whole social inequality aspect uh, of this industry and yeah there, there's absolutely no redeeming quality to um, the the fur uh, industry mm. so you mentioned now uh, a few times that you had first-hand experience of uh, infiltrating a fur uh, farm, well, uh, a mink farm. So can you describe that experience? D did you do it several times or was it just uh, one time? And can you describe how did you infiltrate that farm and what did you see, basically what happened? Um, yeah, so I went to five different mink uh, factory farms in different regions of Ontario. Um, I had seen footage from inside some of these farms from other sources. And I wanted to kind of go into these farms and record uh, so many different farms that if I shared the footage with the authorities and with the public that nobody could say that, you know, it's one particular farmer doing this to these animals because I saw the same um neglect and uh criminal animal you know neglect and cruelty at various farms that it was a standard in the industry so basically i would drive out to these farms in the evening um and i would come back later at night after i kind of scoped it out and i would just approach the property they're often surrounded by you know like farm fields and stuff like that like you're way out in the country there's nobody around it's pretty quiet it's actually really easy to get up close to these farms um, other than, you know, going over a fence and like avoiding some of the security. Um, when I went, nobody was really doing that, but uh, now there's probably more security within the industry. I, I heard that they hired some expert from the States, which does uh, security for the fur farms there to come to Ontario. And uh, I know the one fur farmer that took me to court, he said that he had hired uh, night guards and stuff like that. I never encountered that, but I apparently, you know, the, the farmers are spending money on that now. But, you know, all these things can be avoided if you if you know what you're doing. Um, you can still get into these places, still record or uh, rescue animals or whatever activists want to do. Um, basically, I would just like find a weak point in the fence and hop over and then I'm inside the farm. Um, just, yeah, the, the doors on the, the, the main sheds are open. You could actually, even if you wanted to, videotape from the outside. Um, most of them, yeah, you can enter. There was one I went to that was like a state-of-the-art facility. It had been built like um, a couple of years before my investigation there. Um, that one was completely locked. You'd have to break like a door to get in. And I didn't want to, you know, I never damaged anything. I never vandalized anything when I was there. I would just like 
hop the fence into the farm. That one particular one I filmed just from the outside because the, the cages are exposed to the outside. And um, they had like, like I said, they had like air conditioning there and you know, all these, the cages are brand new. So they weren't rusted like the other farms. But what I did notice is that those animals in the state-of-the-art facilities still engaged in those stereotypical behaviors, swaying back and forth, um, breaking their teeth, chewing the bars, that kind of stuff. So it's not the fact that these some of these places are decrepit. That's just like extra cruelty. But, you know, even if you have a state-of-the-art facility like that, that's brand new, that has the enrichments, that has everything, these animals still show that they're suffering through these stereotypical behaviors. Um, you know, some of these places do have like guard dogs, um, which I encountered it to get chased off the farm, um, by a guard dog. I had to run back to my Jeep, um, to get away, which was really horrifying experience. I uh, hope nobody has to deal with that, but yeah, it's just, you go I went at night, you know, the farmers are asleep. Um, their houses are usually pretty far away from, um, the mink, um, part of the farm because, you know, they don't want to smell that uh, manure and stuff right next to their house. I'm sure. Um, yeah, and they're all kind of they're all kind of similar. Um, they all kind of have the same kind of operation going on. Um, just fences around them, big long mink sheds. Um, people they want to find these places. They could go to thefinalnail.com, which has a list of addresses of uh, mink firms across North America, which is updated every few years. Um, also, looking on a satellite image on Google Google Images, you can see. Um, very long rows of mink sheds. It's very kind of a unique um, image on um, Google satellite images. So if you want to find a place like that, you could you could look on that and kind of see how to enter the firm. Amazing. I will add that link in the description below. Um, so you go there at night. You don't meet anyone else. Like you said, you never met uh, a worker of that uh, industry. And you don't vandalize uh you don't break anything you just look and document film uh take you know produce some footage of what is happening inside um do the minks notice your presence um, yeah the minks will will definitely um be aware that you're there especially at night because you know i have uh had a big flashlight or um led light on my camera to record um it's funny that you mentioned that um one of the first articles that came out about my investigation in the media, they always had a spokesperson from the, the fur industry talking about me and said that I was traumatizing the mink with a, with a flashlight somehow. You know, these animals I was recording were literally, literally sleeping and eating uh, food with feces mixed into it. And, you know, the horrifying things they do to these animals each year, you know, 90% of these animals are going to be suffocated to death with carbon monoxide gas. And they accused me, of harming the animals with a, with a flashlight, which is insane. But yeah, these animals do vocalize to each other. Um, they interact with each other sometimes. If they're not in the cannibalism stage, they'll um, kind of snuggle together and sleep together if they're babies. Um, but yeah, they, they do definitely recognize that people are there. Um, so just like a cat or a dog, like, same as any other animal. Have you ever felt like uh, uh, freeing one of those minks and getting away with it uh well i think anybody that's animal rights activist maybe thought about rescuing an animal at some point you know of course i i did but that wasn't my purpose to go to these farms uh, unfortunately it was one of the most heartbreaking things i had to do was to walk away from those places and leave them there but my only hope at the time was that the uh, ospca uh, the ontario society for prevention of cruelty to animals would step in and you know shut these farms down for good so that generations and generations of these animals wouldn't have to go through something like that uh, unfortunately that's not what happened um the ospca um i think did visit some of these farms but you know no action was taken um, actually, after I took these recordings to Animal Justice and we created uh, basically a legal complaint documenting each instance of all my um, videos of specific um, laws or statutes that were being broken, also the codes of practice that the fur industry um, places on themselves, uh, broken dozens of times again and again by multiple farmers. Um, I know in other countries that have done this, you know, the... Um, Authorities actually close down these farms. They take the animals out of there. They charge the farmers with uh, criminal activity, this and that. But in my case, that didn't happen. 
Um, actually, at the same time, my investigation was going on. Um, mine was illegal. It was a public inquiry. There was a legal operation going on by Last Chance for Animals at the Millbank Fur Farm in Guelph, Ontario, where they had an employee hired by the farmer um, who was actually an uh, LCA um, activist. So they stayed there for a few months and they documented, um, you know, everything that was happening uh, to these animals. The same stuff that I saw, but it was all um, done in a more legal way. And that farmer ended up getting charged and convicted of animal cruelty. And I think he only had to pay uh, a very small fine. So, you know, they got it out in the media there. Um, so it was good in that way. But the laws are way behind. The penalties are too too weak um, to prevent uh, farmers from doing that. The profit motive is too high. Um, even though this guy went through, um, you know, a uh, criminal trial or whatever, and he got convicted of animal cruelty, he still has this mink farm. Who knows what's happening to these minks? Um, the one most horrifying part of that investigation was that there's minks there that obviously were in such bad medical condition, they should have been euthanized. Like there, their muscles sticking out of their bodies and just gross stuff. And this farmer just said, just leave them, just let them die naturally, which means basically let them suffer until they die. Um, so this is, this guy is a horrible, horrible person. Um, he should be in jail. And now because of egg-egg laws like Bill 156, those kind of investigations are illegal. Um, things like Mercy for Animals, any kind of PETA or whoever had an undercover uh, employee filming animal cruelty and they brought it to the authorities, that person would be charged with violating uh, 156 and they'd have to pay a fine or maybe a criminal penalty. I, I don't remember all the penalties, but the, the farmer definitely won't be charged anymore uh, because of that statute. Well, I want to talk about the AGAC laws. Um, but first, let's um, dive in uh, your legal adventures, the legal uh, consequences you had to suffer for, again, as a reminder, for entering those farms in the middle of the night, not interacting with anyone, not vandalizing, just taking pictures, not even taking, you know, rescuing uh, a mink. Uh, which would be considered stealing by those people. Um, so for that, you have been um, persecuted um, by, I think, the state. And tell us about um, when you knew about it, when you uh, learned that uh, you were uh, being persecuted and uh, how long it lasted and uh, what were the charges? So, give us a bit of uh, you know details um, of your legal troubles. Uh, well, that's a long story. I'll try to condense it as much as possible here. But um, yeah, so I did the investigation into five different mink farms. Um, three of the farmers actually charged me with break and enter. Um, and then uh, they're in different regions, so it would happen. I'd have like a hearing. I'd one in Oshawa, one in. Collingwood and then Kingston. So every time I'd have to go to court, we'd have a huge rally and there would be media there. So it was good in that way and getting the word out. I'd always get like an interview with the media and people would learn about the cruelty of these farms. But, you know, it's a huge stress to me. Um, I, I was able to luckily raise, I think, like about $70,000 for my legal defense because um, one, one of these charges did go to trial. The other two got downgraded. Um, one was a trespass charge that I... Um, was convicted of, which is basically nothing. I didn't have to pay a fine or do anything, no probation. Um, the other charge in Oshawa got dropped completely. Um, and then when the last farmer took me to a full criminal trial, which was done online, um, PETA helped me get a lot of supporters and the, the court had to play it on YouTube. So a lot of people around the world actually saw this trial, which was good. Um, the, the argument they used well, uh, I'll explain something so to the viewers here. So a break and enter um, is basically uh, entering um, property, but you also have to commit another offense. You can't just break and enter, go into a place, and that's a crime. That does It's not a thing because, uh, you know, if you walked in somebody's door and then walked back out or something and you didn't do anything, it's really harmless. It would be considered like a trespass under the law, um, which is, you know, it, um for people that aren't going onto farms, it's like usually a $65 ticket. You could spend a night in jail, but if you do it under the ag gag legislation now, you can pay up I think, to $20,000 or something like that for doing that. At the time, that didn't exist. So I was, you know, 
able to do these investigations without worry, I thought, until I got charged with the break and enter. So they were trying to say, um, yeah, with the break and enter, there has to be another um, another crime, like, I don't know, uh, stealing stuff usually for break and enter. You break into something, you steal something, vandalism, kidnapping, whatever, right? But I did none of those things. Uh, they tried to say I did mischief, which was under the law is defined as the reasonable enjoyment of someone's property. And the farmer was saying that he got, um, I guess an email, a phone call, and I don't know, something on social media saying they didn't like what he was doing. And he tried to say that because he hired um, security guards, he had a financial cost to him. But uh, this was all after, you know, what I did had nothing to do with, um, directly to do with uh, my investigation. So the court found me, you know, not guilty because I hadn't committed any other crimes. They didn't think that me going onto the farm uh, was sufficient. There was no loss of revenue to the farmer whatsoever. Every mink that was in that farm was, uh, you know, probably gassed and, and skinned and uh, the farmer made money from it. So I didn't cause them any financial damage. I didn't damage any property or do anything. So they weren't able to show there was any other crime other than me trespassing. And uh, I got found not guilty. Um, which was huge because it was set a, I think the, one of the first legal precedents um, like that in Canada that activists could use uh, all over the country. Uh, unfortunately, now it looks like there's going to be federal ag gag bill passed and that was put into the parliament by the Conservative Party. Um, so that was my trouble. Also, at the same time as these break and enter charges were happening, um, they were charging me, they were able to put conditions on me, so I wasn't allowed to leave the province. Um, I wasn't allowed to travel within certain regions within the province. Um, I got civilly sued by one of the fur farmers um, for like $20,000 for mental anguish or something. Um, that ended up going away because my lawyers uh, were some of the best in the world for animal rights. I had two, uh, three vegan lawyers, um, four vegan lawyers as my um, counsel, animal justice was helping. So. It was a big, um, a big long time that took about three years of me going to different courthouses, um, preparing with lawyers, preparing with uh, uh, expert witnesses, um, just traveling around, organizing demonstrations at courthouses. So it was really taxing on myself to engage in all these legal troubles. I won't recommend it for everybody because um, you know you do get burned out after that. Um, but you know, at the same time, I did generate you know dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of media stories against the fur industry. Every time we have one of these protests or demonstrations at a courthouse, um, the media would be there to listen to my story, and I think that did turn public opinion in Ontario against fur um, quite a bit. Um, we used to protest at the North American Fur Auction in Toronto, and you know, as the time all these media stories were coming out, they lost their. Um, they basically not they didn't go into bankruptcy, but they went into creditor protection status, which is like almost similar to bankruptcy. They don't hold auctions anymore. Mm. And it was the second largest in the world. Basically, every fur farmer in Canada would send mink pelts to this auction. They don't do them anymore, which is huge. I don't know if it's directly because of me, but I'm sure the media stuff uh, at some point, their creditors are like, oh, man, this stuff's losing money and public's turning against it. And people are you know going to these fur farms and doing this and that. So um that was one when also to note the fur farmer that took me to trial he closed his fur farm shortly before the trial started and no, no more minks are going to be killed uh, by that guy uh, luckily in preparation for this interview i read some of the articles that covered uh your legal case and all i could think of is this is this is a circus you know this is a joke and one of the point that and you you talked about that that judges and lawyers would bring up is oh but he he was uh he was harming the minks his presence uh there was in some way harming uh the the animals and l like you mentioned you know the fact that they are treated so badly and then slaughtered uh, in the worst possible conditions, to have the the arrogance and I would argue the madness of saying, you know, that you were the one harming them by just filming those poor creatures. Um, 
it just felt, you know, I, I completely, I felt a disconnect with, you know, the logic of the whole thing. It's like those laws don't make any sense. And, you know, it, we, we need a big judicial reform in terms of how we think about animals and their well-being, because this is just stupid on a whole other level. I think uh, I think with that, with uh, people saying you know that I harm the animals in some way by witnessing them suffering, um, I think Johnny Depp said it best. He's like, if you don't like pictures of animal cruelty, you don't stop the pictures; you stop the animal cruelty. So that's that's my thoughts on that. The same. That's a good way of putting it. Okay, let's talk about the agag laws. I covered the topic with Liz White. Uh, the leader of uh, the Animal Protection Party of Canada. And it is considered one of the biggest threats in the animal rights activism world. Um, So why is that? What are those laws about? And why do they represent such a threat for uh, activists? Um, So my thoughts on ag-gag laws is that... um, the, the specific one in Ontario, I can't speak to the others because I don't know them that well, but that one bans, um, the increases fine for trespassing onto farms. So it targets um, stuff like I did. Um, I don't think it'll stop people from doing that because I knew what I was doing was illegal in the first place and it could have gone to trial. And you'll never stop people that have enough, you know, um, I guess willpower, determination to, to go on there and, there's a lot of people that are willing to go to court as we saw with like, you know, meet the victims um, in Kitchener um, during Thanksgiving, there were about a hundred activists that were planning to um, break into a, a turkey factory farm and do a lockdown. They were stopped by the police and um, before that happened, but you know, those people are always going to be there. People willing to break the law to save animals, to rescue them or to film them. So but, I don't think you know, all the money or the jail time will stop those types of activists. They're always going to be there. But what it will stop is, um, you know, legal um, activism, like stuff like uh, what Mercy for Animals used to do, or Last Chance for Animals, where they um, get an employee hired by the organization or institution or whatever, like for a farmer, and then they're able to use that footage to take the fur farmer or uh, whatever slaughterhouse owner or whatever to court. That will end um, because those uh organizations or charity organizations and they depend on you know donors and stuff like that and they can't get caught up in legal battles um whereas other you know individual activists or grassroots organizations probably won't care about that that much so it'll stop the bigger organizations that are charities or um, doing it legally and it also targeted the save movement so um those people that go give water to pigs on uh, you know boiling hot uh, transport trucks during the summer or you know try to go record them in the winter time and these trucks uh, outside the slaughterhouse there's their skin stuck to the side of the metal frozen to the side of the metal um truck and like ripping off like people that document that kind of stuff are going to be targeted more uh, because of that um and i think um you know these egg gag laws everybody's going to say it's going to change the whole landscape of um and rights like it will in some ways hide the animal cruelty and legal means. But I think what it's having is the opposite effect where it's driving people to do more underground direct action. Um, in the last year, I know in the United States, it's been the highest spike of um, direct action for animals. Like mink, mink releases have gone up exponentially. There's never been more mink releases than this year since like the 1990s. So all the people that wanted to document animal cruelty and bring it to the police or, um, you know, have these undercover employees go in. Everybody's turning to underground actions where they just, you know, release these animals, they rescue them directly. They don't involve the police. It's all underground and um, it's increasing uh, more and more, I think, because of these egg gag laws, because people, they've basically criminalized whistleblowers, people that care about animals, people that want to witness this or bear witness to the slaughter trucks. It's all been criminalized now. So people are just going underground um, cutting out the police and the legal system completely. They're doing it anonymously and they're directly helping these animals. So many animals have been rescued this year. It's unbelievable. The, uh, the Animal Liberation Front last December targeted the largest mink farm in the United States and it got shut down after a mink release. So these people that maybe wanted to do it the legal way are going around the law and still helping these animals at the end of the day. And it's growing and growing. And um, I don't think it's something that an egg egg law will stop. It will just stop. Um, 
people doing it uh, in a legal method with through the authorities through the, the normal channels yeah and you you went through that you know you infiltrated those farms you uncovered some illegal practices by those farmers but then they persecute you for having what uncovered illegal practices by illegal means uh doesn't make much sense you know it's the definition of being a whistleblower like what do you expect um yeah it's uh it's crazy but i'm happy to hear you be optimistic about the future of uh, activism work even under those laws and I hope that uh, because now there are a few Canadian provinces and um, U.S. states, I think, who have those laws in place, um, there is a willingness, a political willingness to adopt those laws on a federal level. Uh, but I don't think this will pass, um, or at least I hope not. Um, I, I've seen so much... Uh, Uh, so many activists being mobilized or just, you know, normal vegans being mobilized around this issue and uh, meeting with their uh, MP and trying to express the opinion that this is uh, unconstitutional and uh, this should not pass. And uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm optimistic about that too. You know, one of the, one of the other points I want to make is like the way some of these ag gag bills are worded. They, I don't know about the ones in Canada in particular, but I know there was one in the states where um, that basically made documenting and reporting elderly abuse or child abuse legal under the statute because the the way it was worded, um, that people couldn't film uh, what was happening in certain places. So mm. you know that that's crazy. Imagine having your grandma at a nursing home and somebody's you know punching her or whatever or a kid, you know, getting uh, hurt by an adult. And then they use this ag gag bill to, you know, basically allow that to happen. That's uh, unfathomable. I don't know how people could get behind that. Uh, and again, you know, these ag gag laws are targeting um, specific things that we did, like my um, illegal investigation, legal investigations, and people bearing witness to uh, pigs going to slaughter. And they're, this was lobbied heavily um, by the animal uh egg industry uh, to politicians uh, really because these three methods are super effective of, um, you know, bringing awareness to the public of what's happening. People don't know where their meat comes from. People don't know where their fur comes from. These um, investigations and like people videotaping the trucks is constantly being put out on social media. It's getting um, in the regular mainstream media and then politicians and stuff start seeing this and then, you know, the public will turn against it. So the industry is fighting for its life right now. Um, animal ag industry by um, putting these laws out there and um, there's a, a saying maybe it was by Gandhi um, first they laugh at you then they fight you and then you win and I think we're gone past the they laugh at you stage because maybe you know 10 or 20 years ago people fighting for animal rights would just shrug you off everybody's kind of using that stuff but now everything's becoming vegan um, products are becoming synthetic or like natural um, and we don't really have a society doesn't have the need to use and take from animals as much as we did before. And the uh, industry is having to compete with, uh, you know, these vegan products, these um, natural or synthetic products that can replace, uh, you know, standardized animal products. And they're um, targeting what's been most effective against them. So these things that uh, are legal under the bill were very, very effective. And I don't think it's going to stop animal rights activists. We're just going to find um, new methods to do this. Just like any social justice movement that's very successful, the, the end of it, the repression comes down very hard. And at some point, um, people just say, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to be part of this. And they either go against the law or they get like, you know, people enforcing the law, stop enforcing it because they don't believe in it. So I think we're going to see a lot more of that in the next decade. And this is one more argument for animal rights if you care about democracy and our democratic institutions you should uh, be vegan you should support uh, the animal rights movement because this industry is too powerful it has captured our governments um, whether they are on the left or the right i know that some people say you know, uh, um, 
more liberal governments have been allies of uh, uh, the animal rights movement. Yeah, I mean, define allies. <laughs> but um, yeah. Um, one point I'll say about political parties is that the majority of uh, rural represented MPs are conservative. So a lot of the conservative MPs do support animal ag in that way. They're the ones that are introducing this um, federal ag gag bill. And um, they're the ones targeting activists. Uh, so, you know, if you're going to vote, I would say not to vote conservative, but that's my own personal opinion. Um, I think there's more leeway um, the other end of the spectrum. Uh, yes, that's that's for sure. And I also interpret that as a failure of the animal rights movement of um, influencing uh, conservatives and you know the conservative governments but also conservative people you know i produced an episode with two conservatives who are vegan i, I really believe that we should not just be in our liberal bubble and we should also try to influence and advocate for animal rights in uh conservative circles yeah th there is hope we should just you know nourish that hope um, make it grow into um, a, a more uh, concrete presence of uh, veganism and care for animal rights uh, in conservative circles yeah i'd say for sure um you know when i was doing the end for farming campaign we were protesting all these ming farms at the same time i was meeting with um politicians from every political party i met conservatives uh, liberals the new democratic party try to inform them all of what's going on. And I think, um, you know, there's an election coming up right now. And I think it's an opportunity for animal rights activists to go show up at these politician uh, events or debates or whatever, you know, raise the issue of banning fur farms. Um, British Columbia has already banned fur farming, but we need a federal bill. Um, so, or any animal rights issue in general, uh, vegan issue, go to these debates, go to wherever the politicians are campaigning and bring up, you know, your animal rights issue. Uh, let them know that animals matter, that they're part of our society, and that they need to stop being exploited in such horrifying ways in our name with our tax dollars. Or even become a candidate for the Animal Protection Party of Canada or your, uh, you know, where, wherever you are in the world, uh, the Animal Protection Party that is there, the Animal Rights Party. Um, yeah, it's a, an effective way of uh, making a difference. Um, so I really wanted to talk about uh, the footage, you know, the images um, that that you took of uh, the minks, but also in general that we find online. I had uh, Galen from Anonymous for the Voiceless on. I also had Natalie uh, from the Canada 11 case. And now I have you and I feel like this is a, a holy trinity of... Um, you know, footage of animal exploitation and how it is effective and powerful um, uh, for advocating for veganism and for changes in uh, the animal rights space. Uh, this has been a recurrent theme in those three episodes. So I want to hear you as a professional photographer to um, talk about, you know, the power and also the, the, the influence uh, of that footage and why is it so essential for uh, the animal rights movement? Um, yeah, firstly, I'd just like to say I, I personally know Galen and Natalie and they're both amazing activists. Uh, keep up the good work, both of you. Um, yeah, I would say photography and you know this video footage, um, just images of animals in different settings is hugely important, um, getting that out to the public to educate them. I think even not only um, images of animal suffering, because sometimes, let's be honest, they're hard to watch. I don't always want to watch, uh, you know, horrifying pictures of animals. Um, I do like what uh, D, uh, Direct Action Everywhere, uh, DXE, um, did with their protests that I used to go to in Toronto. They would have pictures of um, the animals being exploited, but they would also show the dichotomy of animals in their natural habitats. So you're not always getting bombarded with horrifying images and people could perceptualize these animals um, in nature. I think the way that they're, they're supposed to be portrayed 
and not just solely, you know, a pig on uh, a truck. Maybe you have a pig at a farm or something like that, which I guess isn't hundred percent natural, but like, you know, showing people what's happening to these animals is important. So they know, but also showing them what, what we could, what we're hoping for, what animals uh, lives could look like if we weren't exploiting them for meat or for, um, you know, clothing or entertainment, stuff like that. Um, show, show people that the animals, um, where they're meant to be. And like, I always try to think of like photography. One of my favorite photographers is, um, Joanne MacArthur from Toronto. I think she's based out of Toronto. Um, her photography is amazing. Her career inspired me to, um, start doing my own photography. Uh, and also, um, she showcases her work all over the world. Um, it's very professional. Her photos are amazing. So I'd recommend people to check out Joanne MacArthur's work. Um, I can't remember the, the exact title. Yeah, but yeah, check out Joanne MacArthur. Um, amazing photos and very powerful. I think it's true. You know, a photo says a thousand words. You know, you can talk about uh, veganism. You can talk about animal rights. You can talk about animal liberation to people. And they have an understanding, but I think once you see a photo, um, you know, it really touches people's hearts, it touches their minds and their souls. And uh, people can really empathize and put their selves in the place of that animal. Maybe if you look into um, the animal's eyes, you can see maybe it looks like your dog at home, maybe your cat at home. Maybe you can make it, you can think of yourself in a, in a cage or in a zoo or in a, an animal testing lab and you could understand what the animal's going through and um, just, you know, have, have empathy with those animals and just reject um, their oppression, reject their exploitation and reject speciesism. Um, we're all put on this earth. The animals are here with us, not for us. And we have to share the world uh, with them. So we should do our best to be stewards and help them and not make life a living hell for them. Amazing. So, Malcolm, did you have anything more to say before we uh, end this conversation? Um, yeah, just a couple of things I wanted to plug. Um, I'm in a documentary called uh, Ending Real Fur. Um, the director, um, Timur Choudhury, um, has been working on this film for uh, years and years. It started off as a 30-minute film and over the years turned into a feature-length film. And it highlights all sorts of different aspects of the Canadian fur industry. He, um, he got uh, famous celebrities involved, like Tim Gunn from um, Project Runway, um, you know, famous singers, um, Ingrid Newkirk from PETA, Animal Justice, uh, Nathan Aaron Nathaniel Smith, who's a, a liberal MP uh, based out of Toronto. He actually got him to introduce a bill to ban fur farming which hasn't been hugely successful, but it's a start uh, in the right direction uh, for a federal fur farm bill. Um, the film documents um, my work um, going into these fur farms. It mentions my trial. There's also a fur farm employee that talks about his experience in the, the working on a fur farm. Um, and he's helped galvanize activists all over the world to oppose um, you know, fur farming and the fur industry in general. And this film is an amazing feature length film. It's very consumable by the public. It doesn't have a lot of, you know, horrifying images of animals, uh, which turn off some people. There is a bit of it, of course, but mostly it's interviewing people and talking about the fur industry. He talks to First Nations people about um, their thoughts on the fur trade, and um, which is interesting because, um, you know, native culture people use fur, but they're really against fur farming because it's not, um, you know, part of their um, their ethics, right? They have way more respect for an animal, even though I don't agree 100% with um, what's going on, but everybody can agree that these fur farms are horrifying and that they shouldn't exist. Want to do even more than that? Get involved with the Coalition to Abolish the Fur Trade, uh, CAFT USA. Um, they've been spearheading um, a campaign against various retailers. They've got a bunch of different major designers to drop fur from their labels, people that are, you know, promoting the idea that fur is luxurious. Um, they're forcing them with direct action, protests, online actions to get rid of fur. So you can participate anywhere in the world uh, with these campaigns to so look up um, the Coalition to Abolish the Fur Trade USA, get involved with that. Right now, the main target is Louis Vuitton. 
Um, they're owned by uh, LVMH, which is Louis Vuitton, Monet, Hennessy. Um, they have a lot of different fashion houses like um, Christian Dior, Marc Jacobs, um, Fendi, and you know those Max Mara. Um, they're all owned by LVMH, so we've been really targeting these specific brands. They're the largest fashion house in the world, and if we can get um, Louis Vuitton to go fur free, it is going to have a huge trickle down effect on all the other designers, all the other fashion houses in the world. Um, celebrities will stop going using fur as much, that kind of stuff, and it'll really be, I think, uh, a fatal blow to the fur trade because once the largest fashion house drops fur. Um, there's going to be nowhere for other designers to look to to um, imitate, um, you know, the highest selling fashion uh, brand in the world. So, again, look up Coalition to Abolish the Fur Trade. And um, the main target right now is Louis Vuitton. So if you're planning a protest against uh, a fur brand anywhere, go after Louis Vuitton. They're the number one target for animal rights activists right now. But yeah, that's that's all I wanted to say. Just plug those few things. So. This was a pleasure, Malcolm. Thank you so much for having been a guest and answered my questions and for all of your great work. Thank you. Thanks for having me on the show, Ryan. I appreciate it. Go for free, everybody. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Before you go, I have a question for you. Do you believe it is ethically acceptable to purchase Ming fur at a secondhand store? I forgot to ask this question to Malcolm during our conversation but I had the chance to ask him the question by email. If you want to know his answer, check out the description below. He made such great points that I had to share his answer with you. I also have a special announcement to make. This is the last episode of the year 2023. I will be taking a break for the next two weeks, but I will be back in 2024 with an exciting lineup of guests and topics. I have really outdone myself for the coming year. In the meantime, let me thank you again for being a friend of this show. I wish you a joyous holiday season and a happy new year. See you soon.